Well, good evening, church family. It is a joy to be back with you. The last time I was here, I was joking that that morning was actually the morning that First Baptist Church uh, voted to confirm me as a pastor there. I had been on staff serving as a ministry director, but uh, the Lord was gracious to work through that, uh, to lead me to that position of becoming a pastor. So that morning, I wasn't a pastor, but then that evening when I came to join you, I was. And after six months, I'm uh, just ecstatic to tell you that I have it all figured out. Um, you know, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, no, but it's been a joy getting to learn and grow at First Baptist. And I'm so grateful for the invitation of your pastor, Pastor Stu, to allow me to come back to spend this time in God's word. So if it's okay with you, I'd love to spend just a moment again in prayer, asking for the Lord's blessing on this time. And then we're going to look at this wonderful section of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we are humbled and we are so grateful for the salvation that we even just were reminded ago as we were singing and as we were praying. And Lord, I just pray that you would be here present with us as we spend time in your word over the next few minutes. God, even as I was preparing for this evening, just the reminder that your word does the work was on my mind. That Lord, you've given us a true and living testimony about your son Christ through these words that the Holy Spirit is a attended to when they were written and is attending to even now as they're about to be proclaimed. And so, God, we want to give ourselves to you in this moment to allow the word to do the work on our hearts. And, Lord, I confess that as I consider myself as the person who will be doing this, I know that I am a weak vessel. I'm reminded where your scripture says that we are like jars of clay, not exactly powerful uh, containers of such a precious message, but Lord, your word goes on to say that you have ordained it to be this way such that you would get the praise and the glory and not us. And so, Lord, as we come to your word, I pray that your spirit would go out ahead of us and would just do the work that I, that we cannot do in our own strength. God, we know that your word is what feeds our souls. It's what enables our ongoing sanctification as we mature into Christ's likeness. And for those who came into this place who may not know you, Lord, we know that your word is also the power for salvation that you attend to the preaching of your word to unveil the mind and the eyes of unbelievers such that they can see Christ and give glory to him for who he is, our Savior. And so, Lord, now I do pray that as we turn our attention to your word, to this wonderful section of the book of Acts, that you would just do the work that I cannot do alone. Lord, we ask for your spirit to attend to this time and give me strength and guard me from error. Help me to say only that which is encouraging and for the edification of your people. Lord, I'm reminded of what Jesus told Peter when he said, feed my sheep. Lord, that's what I want to do. I just want to feed your sheep with the word. So be with us now, I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so you heard our brother just read a couple of moments ago, Acts 2, 42 through 47. So if you have your copy of God's word, I want to encourage you to go ahead and flip there. And while you're turning there, as I was preparing, a, uh, an interesting story came to my mind that I'm going to share with you. And uh, hold with me as we go through, because you may be wondering, what does this have to do with Acts 2, 42 through 47? But I promise I'll get there. But uh, it kind of starts with a little bit about me. If you don't know me, if you spend any amount of time with me, you will know that I am not too keen on physical exercise. I do not enjoy going out running. I do not enjoy uh, uh, you know, going to the gym. I'm trying to get better at it because I know it's good for me. I know it's what I need to do. But as just an individual growing up, it wasn't really part of what I enjoyed doing. But when I came on staff to First Baptist in 2016, one of the things they did not tell me 
was that everybody on staff there quite enjoys all of those things. They enjoy running, they enjoy bike riding, all the physical activities they enjoy. And it got to the point where I was actually nervous to even ask any of them how their week was because they would tell me things like, oh yeah, I enjoyed a 30-mile bike ride, I enjoyed a 50-mile run. I'm like, look, I'm just ecstatic that I didn't take the elevator to get up to the second floor to get to my office, okay? And as I was thinking about even this uh, sermon and something that happened uniquely in my life, a couple uh, years ago, I was preparing um, for a run at the exhortation of some of my friends. You see, it wasn't long before a lot of the brothers on staff started to take an active interest in me, such that they were even able to convince me to sign up for what's called the running of the bulls. It's an 8K run in the city of Durham. You may be familiar with it. Well, I was not looking forward to this, but actually my brother Wes Treadway, who's here tonight, also on staff at First Baptist, he uh, was kind enough to invite me to join him to train and to do that. And I can say after a lot of hard and very painful work, I was able to run it. Now, don't go look at my stats. I think I beat like three people. But I was able to run the race, and I made it through. But what gave me pause as I was thinking about that story, as it relates to the text that we're looking at tonight, is that physical, I guess you could say, growth that I went through was very similar to the spiritual growth that we experience in the church You see, we often at First Baptist talk about the two journeys of the Christian life, that as we make our journey, as we run the race of endurance that Christ has set before us, we run what's called the internal journey of sanctification, which is our progress of being made more like Christ in holiness. And we also run the external journey of gospel advance, which is taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. But if we're not careful, we can maybe think that we can do those two journeys in our own power and in our own strength. That we can honor Christ in our sanctification and we can proclaim the gospel to the world by ourselves. That we don't need any encouragement from a body of believers. And as I was thinking about my running analogy and I was thinking about the life of the church, I was just reminded that God has ordained that we don't do this alone. Just like Wes called me into a program of running, and he walked alongside me and even held himself back such that I would be able to run this race that I would never have been able to run on my own, the Lord has sovereignly ordained his church to be a similar place for spiritual growth where you can, along with other brothers and sisters, be encouraged, exhorted, and be able to run the race with endurance. And so as we look at this section of God's word, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, we see for us a healthy church, an example of a healthy church that if you, Grace Reformed Baptist, emulate the qualities of this healthy church, you too can run your race with endurance. And it's my goal in the next few minutes that we have together to not only consider the example of this church, but to pedestal the local church in your mind and in your heart as supremely worth it as you make your journey of sanctification in this world until you make it to Christ's eternal throne. So as we look at this text, I want to draw out four characteristics of this local church that was planted as a result of Peter's preaching. Four characteristics that I think if we consider them, and as you consider praying for this local assembly, that if you put on these attributes, you too can run the race with endurance well. And these four attributes are the church's foundation, the church's commitment, the church's witness, 
and the church's impact. I'll say that again. The church's foundation, the church's commitment, the church's witness, and the church's impact. And so before we dive into these verses, let's take just a brief moment to look at the context. As you may know, the, uh, uh, the gospel writer of uh, Luke is the one who also wrote the book of Acts. And Luke was a physician and a careful historian. You may remember from Luke chapter 1 where he starts off the gospel of Luke by saying, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. The book of Acts is Luke's continuation of this approach, wherein he's chronicling what happened in the life of the church right after Jesus' death, resurrection, and at the beginning of the local church and its growth under the power of the Spirit. And even early on in chapter 2 where we're looking, we're parachuting into some really exciting stuff. In Acts chapter 1, we saw Jesus' ascension and the promised power of the Holy Spirit in Acts 1.8, where Jesus says he will give his spirit the power that the church will need to proclaim his gospel to the whole world starting in Jerusalem. We saw in chapter 2, even as we were reading just a moment ago, the, uh, the day of Pentecost and the outpouring of that spirit. It was a pretty phenomenal scene. You may be familiar with it where the, if you take a look in your text, if you flip back where it says the spirit was being poured out, there was the sound of a rushing wind. There were tongues of fire resting on the disciples, which were symbols of God's presence with his people. People all over were hearing the gospel in their language as people were suddenly empowered to speak in tongues that were not their own. And this scene was so phenomenal, in fact, that actually Peter begins the very first sermon we have recorded in Scripture by telling the group, we're not drunk. People had thought because of all of the outpouring of the Spirit that maybe they were drunk with wine. And Peter says, no, this is not us being drunk with wine. It's only nine in the morning. No, what you are seeing happening is the pouring out of God's Spirit on his people for the accomplishment of his purposes. And so as Peter clarifies what was going on there and then goes on to preach, he powerfully preaches a sermon like we read in chapter 2. And the church is founded. And it's in this context that we see this healthy church planted. And it's, the, it's in the context of this that we're going to look at these four characteristics. And so let's look at the first one, the foundation of the church. And the foundation at the church, even in the first verse, verse 42, is God's Word. Look again at Acts 2.42. If you have your copy of God's Word, it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Let's stop right there. It's amazing, given all that we just saw in chapter 2, with the powerful pouring out of the Holy Spirit, one may think that what Peter would link to and that the people would be resting in would be those powerful displays of God's presence the wonderful displays of the Holy Spirit. But it wasn't that that Luke chose to be the first descriptor of the church. No, look again, it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And that word devote there means a steadfast, single-minded fidelity to a course of action. 
And what was the content of this apostles te- of the apostles' teaching? Well, let's take a look at Peter's sermon just a few moments ago to see some of that content. Peter mentions in his sermon that uh, the Lord uh, used the prophet Joel and Psalms of David to show how Christ was the promised Messiah and the true resurrected heir to the throne of God. He focuses on how Jesus fulfills all of God's promises from his word and connects every aspect of God's word to Jesus' life and his ministry. He then describes Jesus' death and resurrection as making atonement for sin. He also goes on to share the gospel, talking about how it's the good news for how men can be saved from their sins as it's been revealed in God's holy word. You look down at Acts chapter 2, verse 40, it says, And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. You see, Peter knew that what the people needed was to see Jesus Christ, just as he saw Jesus Christ. You remember Peter, the one who denied Christ and then was restored to Christ. Here you have him preaching powerfully the resurrected Christ. Why? Because Peter encountered the risen Christ and his life was forever transformed. And he knows that what the people need, what even those people need was to see Jesus Christ for who he is unfurled before their eyes. Is that not what the scriptures are? Is the scriptures not just an accounting of who Jesus is as part of God's overall redemptive plan? Is it not just an unfolding of God's salvation purposes wherein he chose from the very beginning to make his name glorious by selecting people who had fallen away from him, by redeeming them into a love relationship with him through the death of his own son, such that he would get the glory through salvation both now and forever? Is that not what the story of scripture is? That's why Peter and the early church powerfully rested on God's word because God's word is how we know who Jesus is and what God expects for us in light of that truth. You see in Romans 1.16, even the apostle Paul knew the power of the word and this gospel message that's found in the word where he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why is he not ashamed? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Greek. And we also know that the Spirit uses the preaching of God's word to convict hearts. Hebrews 4.12, you may be familiar with it. It says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Spirit attends to the preaching of the word to reach into our hearts and to show us where we fail and then to lead us to an understanding of who Jesus is. And what power is behind the proclamation of the word? 2 Corinthians 4, 6, one of my favorite passages in scripture. It says, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Did you hear that? Did you catch the power that's at work in the proclamation of God's word? The same power that spoke the universe into existence out of nothing is the same power that attends to the proclamation of the gospel to transform hearts. And what does God do whenever you proclaim the gospel? Whenever you proclaim this wonderful word? 
God uses it to tear down the veil that's erected in people's minds and hearts. And he pierces their heart with glorious light. And what is that light? It's the light of the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Our pastor at First Baptist often describes uh, and defines faith as the eyesight of the soul by which we can see invisible spiritual realities, both past, present, and future. So when we proclaim God's word, we are actually participating in the Spirit's work of revealing Christ to them such that they can see with eyes of faith all the truth about who Jesus is and what he came to do. Isn't that amazing? And so it's no wonder that this was a foundational aspect of the early church because they knew the power did not rest with them, brothers and sisters. The power rested with God's word and its proclamation. And what was the effect of this gospel when it was proclaimed? We'll look down at Acts 2.37, which is in the, uh, at the end of Peter's sermon. It says that the people were what? Cut to the heart. And their response was, what shall we do? And it's in that moment that Peter then responds and tells them that the only way to be saved, to be born again, is to turn, to repent, and to follow after Christ. And so it's at this moment that I want to just pause. And I just want to ask any of you who walked into this room today, if you did not know Christ, to consider this truth. That God created man in his own image, but because of our sin and our rebellion against him, man fell. And the penalty of that sin was steep. Because not only did it separate us from God relationally, it also brought about a judgment. For the wage of sin is death, is what scripture says. And that death is not just our physical death, it's a spiritual death, and it's a spiritual death that lasts forever. And the only way to be reconciled is to basically get on the same page with God and acknowledge the plan of salvation that he wrought from the beginning, which was found even in the early pages of Scripture that he promised to bring someone, a seed of a woman, who would come and would heal all the issues that sin brought into humankind. And why did he do it? Because he loved his creation and he wanted a relationship with us. And so before the foundation of the world, Scripture says, he chose us in him such that if we hear the gospel and respond by faith, we can have all of our sins forgiven, both past, present, and future, through simple faith that Jesus is who he says he is. He is God-made man, that he lived a perfect life, that he died a sin-atoning death in our place, and that he rose victoriously over sin and death after three days in the grave, And that his sacrifice in our place was accepted by God. And now when God looks upon anyone who calls Jesus Lord, he looks at them and says, righteous. Isn't that amazing? Positionally secure for all of eternity. So if you walked in and you didn't believe that, I urge you, brother or sister, believe it by faith today. There's nothing you need to do except believe in your heart that Jesus is who he says he is and that he died for you just like he died for me. And then you can enter into all the wonderful things we're about to talk about as it relates to the local church. And so just like Peter proclaimed the gospel, so too your church proclaims the gospel rooted in the word of God. And we also see from this text here that at the end of Peter's preaching, 3,000 souls were added to the number that day. Isn't that amazing? Could you guys imagine if 3,000 people showed up to Grace Reform next week as a result of the proclamation of the gospel? You might have to get some more seats in here, right? We'll have to figure out the COVID protocols. But it would be amazing to see that level of power poured out. Do we believe the word has that power? Do we believe that when we speak it, it has that power? 
Peter and the local church did. And they saw tremendous fruit. And the implication from Luke's writing here is that this devotion was not just an entry place into the faith. It wasn't just the first thing that the church did. No, it also marked them in the regular patterns of their ministry. There was this posture of passing on what was received to them and continuity and growing in the depth of the knowledge of God. You hear it in other places like when Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. It's like a relay race of information here, just sharing the word back and forth. 1 Peter 2.2, 2, Peter says, Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. You see, brothers and sisters, the word is not just, like I said a moment ago, the mere entry point into our faith. It's what also sustains us in our faith. Think about what Jesus himself says in Matthew 4 when he says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We need that ongoing life-giving sustenance from the word That as we hear the word, as we drink it in, and as we proclaim it, the Spirit uses us to mature us into Christ-likeness. You know, as I look over here, my two kids, Joanna and Drew, are sitting on the third row. I told them I wouldn't call their names, but here I am lying to them. Hello. Um, So they're sitting up here, and as I look at them, whenever they came out of the womb, they were small and squishy and needed a lot of help, right? They needed sustenance. And they started by drinking milk. They needed that milk to just sustain their bodies and to grow them. And now, if you look at them, they're basically just a conglomeration of rearranged chicken nuggets and goldfish because that's what they all, all they enjoy eating. Um, so as they've eaten, they've grown and, and they've matured. And it's wonderful to see that physically happen. But as I was thinking about them, the same thing happens when we're in the Word. You know, it's funny. I appreciate the prayers that Pastor Stu said for Andy a moment ago. As I reflect even on my spiritual journey, I realize that if you were to say, you know, what's your favorite sermon by him or what's the, you know, what's the one thing that you remember? I don't know if I could pinpoint an exact sermon or an exact moment at every time that would, you know, maybe evidence how much he's changed my life. But it's through the steady diet of hearing the word preached that I've grown and matured to be who I am. And it's the same way that the church grows as well. And this church was no different. It was word-centered because they knew that it was the ongoing sustenance they needed. Now, you may be wondering, Chase, why are you belaboring this so much? Because I believe that in this day and age, the word is under direct assault by the evil one at every turn. We have to remember that the word, the message, has been entrusted to us as a good deposit that we have to guard and that we have the responsibility of relaying to the next generation and to those who have yet to believe. So, Grace Reformed Baptist, don't turn away from the word of God. It's the foundation of the local church. It was the foundation then, and nothing has changed for 2,000 years. But that's not the only thing we see about this church. Of course, they were devoted to the word, but they also were very committed. So the second thing we're going to look at, the commitment. They were committed to each other in radical fellowship in radical fellowship. So look back at Acts 2.42. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. The word for fellowship here goes much deeper than just merely being in the same room. No, this word refers to a joint participation, a common partnership, a mutual dedication. 
with a commonality that binds us as we serve Christ and as we take Christ to the world. 1 Corinthians 1.9 says it this way, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son. So this concept of fellowship first starts with our relationship with, with Christ. When we come into relationship with Jesus, we have fellowship with him. But then that fellowship extends to all those who are in Christ. Philippians 1, 3 through 5 says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership, same word there, fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. You see, when we place our faith in Christ, when we identify with him, we don't just identify with Jesus, we identify with his body. There's an extremely strong connection between Christ and his body, the church, in Scripture. And so we come to the body acknowledging this truth, and so it makes sense that they would be devoted to one another in significant ways. I define fellowship this way, Christian community cultivated through common commitment to Christ's commission. Do you like those C's? It's a great Baptist preacher's trick, using alliterations. Let's say that again. Fellowship is the Christian community cultivated through common commitment to Christ's commission. And it's focused on Jesus because we as a people of God were purchased for God. Titus 2, 13-14 says, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. So whenever you come to faith in Christ, you enter into the church, universal, but also in local manifestations of that, like little outposts of the coming kingdom. That's what the church is, and all of us belong together with Christ. And this unity comes with a wide variety of blessings. You see, God in his infinite wisdom has designed our great salvation such that we're brought into this larger community where we can be challenged in our sanctification and exhorted in our gospel proclamation. Think about all the times in Scripture where you see the phrase, one another. Has it ever dawned on you that there are certain commands in Scripture that you cannot obey without the body of Christ? For example, Romans 12.10, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Well, it's pretty hard to do that if you never talk to one another and never see each other, right? Ephesians 4.2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bear with one another in love. Well, it's hard to bear with a brother or a sister in love if you're never around that brother or sister and you're not part of that community. Or Philippians 2.3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Well, how can you count others more significant if you're never around the others? So it's amazing how the body of Christ, us being a part of it, it's completely foreign to Scripture to be a Lone Ranger Christian. When you come into the body, you're part of the group. That's the way it is because Christ has purchased for himself a people and you as a person have an integral role to play in that community. So positively, we see elsewhere in Scripture like Hebrews 10, which I'll read in a moment, positively, The church helps us by spurring us on in our faith journey. Hebrews 10.25 says, Let us consider how to stir one another up. By the way, the the word there in the Greek is like a prodding, like a poking, 
like you would do to a farm animal when you need to get it to move. That's what we're supposed to do to each other in the church. Don't go grab some pitchforks and stuff. I just mean that's what we're supposed to do with our words. To stir one another up to love and good works. Then it says, not neglecting to meet one another, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. But then negatively, the church is also there to also help us to be mindful of those sin areas where perhaps we just don't see our need to grow. Hebrews 3, the author of Hebrews says, but exhort one another every day as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And so you see, the Lord has given us brothers and sisters in the local church, and we see that here in the text, to build us up and to spur us along in the journeys that Christ has called us to. And he's also given us gifts to use to accomplish that purpose. 1 Peter 4, 10-11 says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Or Ephesians 4, it says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry and for the building up of the body of Christ. Listen for the purpose here. It says, Until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. So God's given us gifts that we should use to help each other along in the journey as well. You know, it's amazing when I look at a group like this or even when I'm teaching at First Baptist, I'll often run into people who say, the Lord hasn't given me any gifts. The Lord, the Lord I, you know, I just come to church. I, I, you know, I, I sit in the back. I don't think I could ever do that. I don't think I could ever do that. Brother or sister, I want to tell you, based on the authority of God's word, that's a lie from the devil. Because Jesus said, when he ascended, that he gave gifts to men. And the repeated uh, promise in Scripture is that God's Holy Spirit equips every believer with spiritual gifts to use for the edification of the saints and for the advance of the gospel. Each one of you sitting in here today has a role to play. And so I would encourage you as an application, even here, to ask, what are my gifts? How am I using them for the blessing of the church and for the advance of the gospel? Do I know what my gifts are? Ask your brothers and sisters in the church what your gifts are. They'll think of something. You guys need to start thinking of stuff now so when people ask you, you can think of something. But you'll think of something and then use it for God's glory. That's why he gave it to you, to build up the church. And this commitment was on display in the local church. Look at Acts 2.44. It says they be- all who believed were together, so they, they loved being together. It was obvious to the watching world that they liked it as well. We'll get to that in a moment. Acts 2, 44 through 45, it says they had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and their belongings and distributing proceeds to all. They loved each other as a result of being bought and purchased by Christ to be brought together. They loved each other so much in that truth that they were buying and selling stuff so that no one had any need. Verses 42, uh, sorry, uh, 32 through 37 in Acts 4 says that they were laying belongings at the feet of the apostles such that they could be given out to any who had need. And then we see the culmination of this commitment in Acts 2, 46, where it says day by day they were attending the temple together. They were loving each other around being, or being around each other so much that day by day they were assembling. That is commitment. And this is all in fulfillment, I believe, of what Jesus said in John chapter 13. 
that the church would be a testimony to the watching world. He said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You know, a while back when I was uh, doing an English conversation class at uh, First Baptist, we had a, a large number of people who came from Duke University who were Chinese speakers, Chinese. And uh, it's a joy to get to know them, but sometimes they come with varying degrees of ability in English. And so we try to meet them where they're at, but there's this one guy who came. He always came, but he spoke no English at all. And we had some people who could translate Chinese, but in the context of our class, it, there wasn't a lot of time to build relationship. But he would come every week, and we would try to get to know him, and he would just sit in the back. And, you know, we're having class, and we're serving alongside each other as the church. And one day, this guy comes up to me, and he comes up to another brother who could speak Chinese. And through a translation, he said, I don't know what you have, but I want it. And I remember we asked him, what are you talking about? And uh, through the translator, I didn't just say, what are you talking about? Um, but uh, they translated, what are you talking about? And he, he said, well, every week I come and I sit in the back and I see the love that you have for one another as the church. And then you selflessly love others out of an overflow of that. I'm paraphrasing. You know, he didn't quite say it like this, but this is the gist. And he says, I don't know what you have, but I want it. Well, by God's grace, we got to tell him what we have. And I don't know where he's at in his faith journey. He didn't make a profession that day. But that just serves as a testimony of the power of what it means to be a part of the local church as the assembly that God has called us to be. And certainly it had effect back then as well as we're going to see in just a few moments. And so we have this church that's founded on the word of God. We have this church that is committed to one another with radical fellowship, devoted to one another, And we also have now the witness of the church, which was worship and evangelism. It may be hard to see in this text, but this local assembly was devoted to formal practices when they gathered together that marked them as a unique gathering. Look again at verse 42. It says, uh, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship. And then it says, to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. So integral to this first church's activities were not only devotion to the word and to the fellowship, but to ordinances and the formal times, like I mentioned, of worship. We already saw at the end of Peter's sermon that those who received Christ were baptized, so they practiced that ordinance as an entry point into the church. But as an ongoing indicator of their unity with Christ, they also celebrated the breaking of bread. Now, commentators and theologians differ on whether or not this is a reference to the Lord's Supper. Um, I, I think it probably could have been a reference to the Lord's Supper based off what we know of early church gatherings that would meet in homes. And the Lord's Supper was normally practiced as, a, as an extension of their hospitality. It wasn't until later on that uh, the Lord's Supper was sort of set apart as a separate uh, time that was celebrated. It was more just an extension of their fellowship at that time. So I think here it was probably referring to the Lord's Supper. And uh, in this way, they would set apart this time to remind themselves of their ongoing commitment to Christ. And it's fitting that we're celebrating the Lord's Supper today as a congregation. Uh, I didn't actually know that until even earlier this week. When I chose this text, I had no idea. I thought, how fitting, because the Lord's Supper is such a great reminder of what Jesus has done for us and the body that we've been called into. 
Because, brothers and sisters, when we take the Lord's Supper together, it is a memorial, but something is, is unique is happening, I believe, by the Spirit's presence in the Lord's Supper. Because when we take the bread in just a few moments, we're reminded that Jesus' body was broken for our sin. We're reminded that Jesus willingly gave up his life in our place so that we could be reconciled to God. We're reminded that Jesus spilled his blood in payment for sin. As the author of Hebrews makes plain in Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And it does even more for us as a corporate body. It humbles us as we recount the great cost of our salvation together. It invokes self-examination whereby we confess sin and repent before God and to our brothers and sisters if there's any division or any hostility between us. It emphasizes our unity when we take it all together as we testify as one body that we belong to Jesus. And so the Lord's Supper was practiced continually for all the reasons I just mentioned in the local church to proclaim Christ and to remind them of the truth that binds them together. The reason why I emphasize this is because there's a lot of things vying for our attention today that is trying to unify us. There's, you just pull up Twitter or Facebook or the news and you'll see people vying for your attention and rallying calls for particular views and for particular opinions. And we have to be reminded that as a church, what unifies us is not political parties. It's not certain beliefs on masks or no masks. The things that unify us as a body is the gospel of Jesus Christ and the fact that we all are humble before the foot of the cross. It's not that those other things are not important and don't need to be considered. They're just not ultimate. And so it's amazing how the Lord baked it into his plan that we would have this constant and consistent reminder, a celebration that helps us remind ourselves, yes, Lord, we are part of the body of Christ and what unifies us is what he did for all of us that our sins are forgiven, and that we have unity with him. But that wasn't the only thing that marked the early church. They also were steadfast in prayer. You'll notice in the text that it says they were, they were devoted to the prayers. Uh, those who have studied the early church uh, see that even in the pages of Scripture, there were times that were set apart for the church to gather for prayer. You can look down at Acts 3.1, where we even see that example with the disciples going up to the temple for prayer. You have places like Colossians 4 where we're exhorted to continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So the local church also set aside times for prayer where they were acknowledging their continued dependence on the Spirit. And then they were also uh, together at appointed gatherings for praise and worship. We see in this text that they attended the temple together, which was a large enough venue to hold them all. But they also would meet as small groups in their homes and in other places where they would share meals and they would enjoy fellowship. They were dispersed into the community and they bore witness there. And these times were filled with praising God. They were filled with gladness, it says in verses 46 and 47. And they were also filled with all the benefits of holding each other accountable and in sharing Christ that we discussed earlier as well. And what's powerful, too, is we don't see in the early church a divorcing of worship and uh, the gospel proclamation. We see that for them, they were all, it was almost synonymous. Look again at verse 43, where it says, All came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. This was an awe-inspiring church as the Spirit of God was poured out on them. And it's the gladness of the church and the power of the church that testified to the spirit 
of God being with them in their midst. And this all led very powerfully to the impact of the church. The fourth characteristic, the impact of the church was God-empowered growth. Look again at verse 47, where it says, I'll read it again for us here. Verse 47, praising God and having favor with all people, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You see, this message and its communication was the only thing that ultimately mattered to them. And ultimately, I think it's the only thing that matters to us as well. And the church lived this truth out every single day. And if you look again at verse 47, we see that the church was effective in sharing this truth because God was adding people to their number as the word was going forth. You see, it was a natural outflow of their worship that the word just poured forth from them and the Lord brought the fruit from that proclamation. Very powerfully, their devotion to Christ and their devotion to each other is what fueled their devotion to God's mission. It's the two journeys that I elaborated earlier on display. As they were being built up in Christ's likeness, they were also being empowered for Christ's proclamation. And the church back then understood it. They knew it and they saw it. And sometimes I wonder if we've maybe lost that a little bit in the church. Like I alluded to earlier, do we believe that when we meet together that something powerfully is at work here? And do we believe that when we go forth into the community as a church that something is powerfully at work through our witness to them too? It was certainly true then. How much more can it be true of us today as well as we continue to proclaim that truth until Christ comes? And in Acts 2, uh, 2.39, Peter acknowledges that all whom God is calling to himself will be saved. So we go forth with the promise that God is calling his elect to himself. That God is, in the one, uh, God is the one, excuse me, who's in the business of saving sinners. But he has chosen to do it through us, his people, the church. I'm reminded of Ephesians 2, which says, By grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, is a gift of God, not a result of works so that no man may boast. And then it says this, for we are his workmanship, the people of God, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works that we may walk in them. And because it's God's power at work, we know that the church's mission will be successful. That as we go forth into the world, we have the sure foundation of what Jesus said in John 6, that all the Father gives to him will come to him, and whoever comes to him, he will never cast out. And so as we're considering being the church, both here and as, as I have the responsibility of shepherding the congregation at First Baptist Church, Durham, as we consider our calling in the world, we have to be mindful of the mission that God's called us to as the church. We were never meant to just receive the truth and keep it to ourselves. We were always intended to receive the truth and to let the light shine forth from us as a testimony to all nations until Jesus returns. And so by way of application, we see the foundation of the church was God's word. The commitment of the church was this radical fellowship. The witness of the church was worship and evangelism. And the impact of the, of the church was God-empowered Growth, And so I'm just going to ask in closing a few probing questions that I want you to consider as you think about, are you living out what this early church was living out as Grace Reformed Baptist Church? So number one, are you devoted to the apostles' teaching, namely the person and work of Christ? We have this book 
the scriptures that were given to us by God to reveal to us God's redemptive plans and who Jesus is? Are you resting in the word and are you allowing the word to dwell in you richly? Are you deriving your daily nourishment from God's word? You know, God's word talks about the word as being more crucial to your life than even food itself. Do you believe that? It's easy to say we believe it, but does your life testify to that by waking up early in the morning and reading, to, reading the scriptures and by praying to the Spirit to put those scriptures into practice? Do you avail yourself of opportunities to come and hear good teaching, like gatherings like this or other times of education for the sake of building up your faith? Be devoted to the proclamation of God's word and to being built up in it yourself. Because it's only those who have been built up by the word of God who will be equipped to share the word of God with the lost and dying world. So, are you founded on the word of God? Secondly, very simply, are you devoted to the fellowship? Are you uh, in community with other brothers and sisters in Christ? Are you edifying and encouraging one another, making best use of your time and of the gifts for this purpose? Are you inviting reproof and correction from brothers and sisters in Christ? Are you using your gifts, like I mentioned, to build up the church? Are you allowing others to use their gifts to bless you? Are you considering it joy to come and to worship together? Are you participating in small group ministries and accountability partnerships? And are you concerned about the church whenever you consider your schedule and making your time? Brothers and sisters, to be devoted to the fellowship takes work. It makes sense that it would take work too. The devil knows that this is central to our faith and it's central to our building up of the kingdom of God. So it makes sense that he would place every obstacle possible to your involvement in the local assembly. And I know that COVID makes this difficult and we're praying that the Lord would bring an end to this pandemic so that we can return to normal patterns of ministry. But take heart, brothers and sisters, this time is temporary and we have to be on guard that we would replace any structures maybe that have been waning in strength with strong structures and foundations that build up the life of the church. Similarly, are you marked by radical generosity that evidences devotion to Christ and his church? Are you involved in meeting needs in both the church and the community? And are you involved in evangelism through the life of the church? These were all things that marked the early church and they're what should mark us as well. And if you're hearing all these questions and you're thinking, my goodness, that sounds like a lot. I humbly confess it is a lot. But I want to leave you with one thing that actually appears in our church covenant. It may appear something similar in your church covenant. And I'm going to use the old language. We updated our language recently, but I prefer the old language. It says in there that we will commit ourselves to the local church and we will give it sacred preeminence over all institutions of human origin. And the reason why I like that phrase, sacred preeminence over all institutions of human origin, is because it's not just a set of check marks as it relates to coming on Sunday, coming on Sunday evening, going to that prayer meeting. It instead describes what ought to be the disposition of our hearts if we truly understand what the local church is and what a blessing it is to be a part of a local church. Isn't it astounding, brothers and sisters, that God has orchestrated a plan wherein we become part of a body of believers who helps us in our journey so that we can make it to judgment day where we can hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, And that all along the way, he's also giving us opportunities through the church to earn crowns of righteousness on judgment day. That as you use your gifts, you're not just helping someone else's salvation journey, but you're actually earning accreditation from the Lord himself on judgment day, empowered by the Spirit. 
Isn't it amazing that he's worked all of this together for our good and his glory? Well, if all of that is true, I just want to exhort you as you consider what it means to be brothers and sisters in Christ, that the early church and even this church are the same in that we're united in Christ, founded on his word. We have a role to play in each other's lives and a role to play in the world, and the church is God's plan A for accomplishing that mission. So in closing, before I pray, I'm going to do something a little strange perhaps, but I want to just do it because I think it's helpful. I want you to just take a moment to look at one another. Just look at each other. These are the people that God in his sovereign plan has given to you to help you in your faith journey during the season where you're at Grace Reformed Baptist. Pray for one another. Encourage one another. Edify one another as long as you have time and breath to do it. And whenever you have to depart from this place, make sure you join another local assembly where you can carry out the spirit of all that God has entrusted to us to do as his church. Close with me in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for this time in your word. We thank you for Acts chapter 2 and for the encouragement we derive from seeing what your word does in the life of your church. Lord, I pray that you would help each of us to walk away from this time perhaps more committed than ever to the local church. Not because we're uh, committed to the church in and of itself, but because we're committed to the Savior of the church, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for the church as, as a possession that he will usher into eternity to be with him forever. Lord, I pray that you would just increase our estimation of what it means to be brothers and sisters in Christ called to fellowship with one another. Help us, Lord, to love one another well, to serve one another well, and to be a light that you've called us to be in this lost and dying world, knowing that your commission is going forth and that you still have work to do in and through us until Christ returns. Be with us now, Lord, as we move into a time of celebrating the Lord's Supper as a reminder of all these truths, and help us, Lord, perhaps in a new and fresh way to just be delighted to be brothers and sisters in Christ. And I pray lastly, Lord, for any who do not yet know Christ, that you would work in them through this time, that they would see Jesus as their Savior and would turn and place their faith in him. We love you, Lord. Thank you for this time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.